Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. Welcome to the New Books Network. Welcome to the New Books Network podcast on how to be wrong. I'm John Trapagan, your host for this Journey Through Error, and today I'm joined by Dr. Bill Tsutsui, who is Chancellor and Professor of History at Ottawa University, which is a private comprehensive university with residential campuses in Kansas and Arizona. And I will say, I looked it up and it said that it's in that we also have a campus in Surprise, Arizona, and I read it as, we also have a campus in Surprise, Arizona. <laughs> so <laughs> then I looked back at it and went, oh no, that's a place. <laughs> anyway, um, Bill has written extensively on Godzilla, among other things Japanese, and has had a distinguished career both as an historian and in higher education administration, having held all sorts of interesting positions as things like Associate Dean for International Studies at the College of Liberal Arts and Sciences at the University of Kansas, Dean of Dedman College of Humanities and Sciences at Southern Methodist uh, University in Dallas, and also uh, the presidency of Hendricks College in addition to his current position. So, Bill, it's great to have you on How to Be Wrong. I think it'll be an interesting conversation. I am thrilled to be here, John. I just love the topic of this podcast uh, because I've spent my whole life being wrong. So, <laughs> <laughs> Well, you know, this is it's actually something that I have found with su- very successful people that they have made a lot of mistakes along the way. And I think that's one of the interesting things that we've tried to get into with this is the sense of, you know, things don't always go right. But what's interesting is then what do we do with things that don't go right? And so... I'd like to just start by asking if you talk a little bit how about how you get from Godzilla to university tra- chancellor. That's an interesting uh, trek right there. <laughs> and I, I wonder if you can talk a bit about sort of the intellectual and profess- professional paths that's allowed you to kind of wind up where you are now as head of Ottawa University. Well, you know, let me just say uh, it is not a linear path, as you can probably imagine, uh, from being a uh, seven-year-old kid in central Texas who falls in love at first sight with his first Godzilla movie to then becoming a Japanese historian and then ultimately becoming one of the suits uh, at uh, a university. Um, You know, uh, I'm a person of passions. Uh, My mother was very much like that. She was interested in everything in the world. Uh, And, you know, uh, she could walk into a bookstore and look at the first book and want to read the thing cover to cover, go to the second book and want to read it cover to cover. I'm exactly the same way. Uh, And my really one of my first passions was Godzilla movies. Uh, And especially as a Japanese American kid growing up in central Texas in the early 1970s, there wasn't a whole lot about Japan to hold on to at that time. Uh, When my friends at the schoolyard at Davy Crockett Elementary thought about Japan, which was not often incidentally, they would inevitably think of Pearl Harbor, they would look at me, and I'd end up on the ground being, you know, hit and kicked, you know. Uh, So I didn't have a lot of positive associations uh, with my Japanese heritage, uh, but Godzilla was such a thing, uh, and instilled in me a real uh, uh, sort of interest in 
uh, a country that I was connected to through my father, but otherwise didn't know very much about. Uh, and that led me then, uh, as uh, I got to college and had my first opportunity to take some courses on Japan, to, you know, just on a lark uh, in my freshman year, take a course called Industrial East Asia. Uh, and this was at Harvard. Uh, and I happened to be taught by a guy named Ezra Vogel. Uh, oh, yeah, he's, legend, uh, he's in a little the familiar, yeah. <laughs> yes, he wrote the book called Japan is Number One. Uh, and uh, uh, he's a charismatic guy, uh, became a mentor uh, to me uh, and really changed my life, you know. Uh, and uh, I ended up majoring in East Asian studies, which was a major that he was director of. Uh, and eventually went into the family business. My parents were both professors, so I grew up on college campuses. Uh, uh, I would sit around the kitchen table hearing about faculty meetings. Uh, and so uh, uh, I decided, well, I'm going to be a professor too. Uh, uh, ended up uh, in grad school. Uh, uh, came out at a time, and you know, I hate to say this, given what the academic job market looks like right now. Back in the uh, early 1990s, uh, uh, I think there were about 25 jobs in modern Japanese history, tenure track, research one institutions I could have applied for. And that year, I think there were six PhDs granted in this country in Japanese history. <laughs> so I was picking and choosing, uh, but ended up at the University of Kansas, uh, which I have never regretted. It was a great first job. Uh, had wonderful colleagues, good East Asian uh, programs. Um, and I assumed I was settling in for the life of a college professor, right? I would keep churning out books. Uh, I would um, keep teaching my undergraduate classes. I'd have the occasional PhD student. Uh, and uh, if my mother was one of those people who was interested in everything, the one thing she was not interested in was administration. Uh, she had a healthy disrespect for anybody uh, with a title uh, like dean or provost or president. Uh, and so uh, she was one of those gadflies that would, you know, uh, shoot the spitballs in the back row of the faculty meeting. And I became that person uh, when I was at KU. Um, and I realized after maybe four or five years that I could be uh, the naysayer. Uh, I could be uh, the one who... Uh, made problems in an organization, or I could be a change maker uh, that uh, rather than sit on the sidelines and uh, say catty things, maybe I should step up and agree to do some things. Uh, and so that started uh, a habit, which I still have today, uh, and which got me into this podcast today, which is when I hear about something interesting and somebody asks me to be a part of it, I'll say yes. <laughs> and so I started saying yes to service jobs, uh, chair this committee, uh, uh, run our honors program, be assistant chair. And before I knew it, uh, I was associate dean uh, at Kansas. And it was a wonderful job. I worked with faculty. I worked with students. I was building programs. I was writing grants. And yet by that point, I'd been 17 years at the University of Kansas. Uh, and I knew where everybody was buried in that place. I'd been through all these wars. I had scars this deep on my body. And I decided I needed a change of pace. And my wife was feeling the same thing, uh, too. Uh, and I just happened to get a call from a headhunter one day. Uh, and the recruiter said, have you ever thought about being a dean? And I said, honestly not. I've never thought about 
what I want to be when I grow up. I've just sort of fallen into things and said yes and done what seems interesting and important to me. Uh, uh, and ends up, holy cow, six months later, I'm a dean down at SMU uh, in Dallas. Uh, and once you get on that track and once you have at least moderate competence in what you do, you tend to get kicked upstairs. So sorry about that. That's okay. Yeah. It's normal. I, I can't yeah. turn off my Zoom phone while I'm on Zoom. Right, right. Yeah. Uh, so uh, uh, um, I never, frankly, in my life imagined myself as a college president. Uh, um, frankly, when I became college president, I wasn't exactly sure what a college president did. Uh, but it's a wonderful job. Uh, because uh, you get to see all parts of an organization. You get to work with everyone from uh, faculty members to alums to students to trustees uh, to the folks that cut the lawns and cook the food. Uh, and that's a real privilege uh, to be part uh, of that process. And I liked it so much, I've done it twice now. So, uh, 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 and it's uh, allowed me to pursue some of my passions uh, in life. One is uh, promoting Japan. I've been able to promote uh, international studies at uh, all the schools uh, I've been to, and also uh, to work on uh, equity and diversity, uh, which are really important to me as a Japanese American, uh, and especially when I look at the issues in our society, serving institutions that are really trying uh, to uh, open the gates wider uh, to opportunity in our society uh, and uh, treat people uh, in ways uh, that are humane, empowering, and fair. Uh, that is what keeps me coming to work every day. Yeah, that's a tremendously important uh, thing. I think, you know, one of the things, so you know, my wife is Japanese and I have two kids who are Japanese Americans, or as they say in Japan, halves. And as a person who's white, it's really been through their eyes that I've seen what it is not to be white in this country and the tremendous importance that is there to have leaders who are trying to redirect things and to create much more equitable environments. And, um, you know, if you just kind of walk around like I do, you know, being a, an old white guy, uh, nothing really gets in your way, you know, and, and to then see what, you know, my family has experienced. Uh, the pandemic has been a good example of it. You know, we've had some things happen with that, but just more subtly too. And so I, I think that's really, really interesting to hear how that has shaped the way you've been pursuing what you've wound up doing. Yeah, there is, you know, people talk a lot about the bamboo ceiling. Uh, and I think the bamboo ceiling is for real in academics, for better or worse, uh, that uh, when you look at the proportion of Asian Americans among the professoriate, it is significantly higher than it is among administrative ranks. It's sort of like senior scientists at the NSF or uh, executives in Silicon Valley uh, or something. Often Asian Americans and Asians are seen as worker bees uh, rather than leaders. Uh, and uh, uh, I would say I've had to grow into the role of a leader. It wasn't a natural thing for me. I'm a shy person uh, by nature. I know, I know now few people believe that, that I'm actually uh, an introvert. Uh, but uh, in many ways, it was the experience of teaching that brought sort of a new me into the world, that that experience of being in the front of the room uh, uh, and being on stage and taking that role ultimately made me that person. Yeah, that's, I think it's something actually a lot of people don't understand about being a teacher and being a professor is that it's a role. Um, when you're in the front of the classroom, you're on stage. That's the way it is. And 
that can mean a lot of different things. It can mean you're a stand-up comic. It can mean that you're, you know, trying to convey information, whatever. But um, it's a bunch of different things. And um, you do learn how to sort of manage that identity. And it isn't necessarily, I'm, I'm also very much an introvert, but people, when they see me out in the classroom, they think, oh, you must be very extroverted. And I'm not. Um, so that's really interesting. Um I'm also, I'm intrigued. Our paths are so similar. I, I got interested in Japan watching Godzilla movies on the creature Isn't double feature. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that was, that was how I got interested in it. So, um, so I'm curious, you know, as you're a historian of Japan, uh, you focused your intellectual attention on understanding culture outside of North America. Um, you, you know, grew up in an environment where, um, you were, you know, you're a Japanese American. Um, I'm curious, how do you think, I mean, you kind of touched on a little bit with issues of, of equity and diversity, but how do you think your being a scholar of a different country has influenced your ideas related to leadership? And, you know, also just how has the study of Godzilla had an influence on how you approach, I mean, maybe you go around stomping campuses, I don't know, but, <laughs> uh, so, uh, but I'm really interested, you know, how does, how does what you've done as a scholar shaped how you function as a leader? I, you know, I'm going to give you a sort of eggheads answer uh, to that because uh, I started as a historian of Japanese business. Uh, and in particular, I studied the history of Japanese management, uh, which back in the 1990s was a hot topic. You know, these were the days of uh, uh, Toyota management, Kaizen, you know, all these uh, buzzwords from Japan were coming over to the United States uh, and infusing American management. I mean, down into universities, we were having quality control circles uh, on some uh, uh, campuses. Uh, and it's interesting that that experience of studying management actually has helped me understand organizations and helped me understand how to work with people. Uh, the caricature from back then, which I'm sure you're aware of and many people have internalized, is this notion that American management is very top-down, uh, that there are experts telling the workers what to do. Uh, this is the old Taylorite notion of the one best way, uh, the time and motion expert with the stopwatch, uh, getting people to be as efficient and productive uh, as they can. And opposed to that was this notion that Japan was the opposite, that if America was top down, Japan was bottom up, that it was all about the group, it was all about consensus and harmony, uh, and that in Japanese corporations, thanks to um, uh, the quality movement and other uh, innovations, uh, that uh, somehow uh, the workers really led in this process of change. And like all caricatures, there's some truth to it. But the reality I found in studying management, both in Japan and in the United States, is really successful companies are the ones that confuse those two, right? Where you have strong leadership, where you respect expertise and professionalism, but where you also draw the people who actually do things. You know, I hate words like employees and workers, uh, uh, but that is, you know, where we are left. And I even... Uh, I'm more allergic to terms like associates uh, that you know, sort of paper over the differences in an organization. But if you can make a truly um, uh, uh, inclusive organization, a participatory organization, it is going to be more successful. Uh, and I think, honestly, there is this lesson uh, from the Japanese corporations that succeeded at the end of the 20th century, in particular places like Toyota, were able to do so because they were able to fuse top down and bottom up in creative ways. 
And to me, that has always been part of the genius of universities as well, uh, that because of our system of shared governance, uh, which is essential uh, to all that we do academically and as organizations, uh, we have mechanisms uh, for uh, empowering and including uh, members of our community. Perhaps not always all members of our community. I've been struck on how many college campuses by uh, uh, how marginalized staff members are, uh, given the important roles uh, they perform. Nonetheless, I think those institutions that to me have done a lot have done so uh, by living that Japanese model uh, of uh, uh, being uh, truly participatory, uh, uh, where there is uh, mutual respect uh, within the organization and a shared vision. Yeah, that's a that's a really interesting observation about universities. Um, I, I do a, a seminar on uh, leadership and ethics that is through the program we have in Human Dimensions of Organizations at UT. And got um, asked to do it for uh, the facilities and uh area at our university. And one of the things that I usually do is I ask um, people to look at the mission statement of their organization and talk about it. And one of the things that came up immediately was that they feel completely left out of the mission statement of the university. And yet they are very clear that they feel that what they do, and I think, of course, they're right, is an absolutely essential part of the educational mission of the university. Because if you don't have facilities, how can you do anything, right? And But it's really interesting. You look at these, this is where the, the top-down thing can be a real problem. You know, some egghead up in the you know, office somewhere wrote a, a mission statement, but didn't really have a sense of how that might apply across the board. And, and I see this quite often with... Um, organizations like museums, universities, um, there is uh, the staff in particular have a way of being kind of outside of the way the mission gets constructed and they feel it. They feel like they're left out. So one of the things I did when I assumed the presidency at Hendricks was I was open with the community. Boy, I know how to advise a student. You put me up in, a cl- in front of a classroom and pull my string, I can give a lecture. That's no problem. I have no idea about the people who actually make this place work. Uh, and so I said, I'm going to spend one morning every month shadowing a member of our staff. Uh, and so I went around with the facilities crew and through mulch. Uh, I did a ride along with our public safety uh, department, and I actually did that at night. So I was going around checking the boilers, uh, and who knew they did that? But they actually uh, do. Uh, I went with our lacrosse coach uh, for a morning to see how they approached their job. But the most interesting was I spent a morning, actually I spent uh, a midday washing dishes in the cafeteria. And it was by far the hardest job that I had. there is a giant machine that makes a huge amount of noise, a lot of humidity, uh, a lot of damp everywhere. I felt like I was going to fall down every second. Uh, and it was me and three people, and the trays of dirty dishes just kept on coming, you know? And I left that, first of all, with incredible respect uh, for those folks uh, that uh, this is an unpleasant job, and yet they did it with good humor. Uh, I was also impressed that they understood why they were there, that they took pride in putting clean plates 
and putting that larger dining hall experience out there for our students. Because even though literally they never saw a student, you couldn't, the trays just appeared. There was no human intervention in there. They felt like they were connected to those students by performing this service for them. And actually it was one of the most highly motivated groups I met. And I'll tell you, for the six years I was president at Hendricks, it was very seldom at an alumni event of any sort that I didn't mention the dishwashers uh, because they, to me, were the real heart and soul of the institution. It is easy to come out of a seminar with brilliant students and say, I've had a great day. It is a whole different thing to be scraping off plates uh, uh, for eight hours in the heat and humidity and leave saying, I'm glad I did what I did. Yeah, that that's, uh, I'm, I'm uh, actually, I, I, well, Having, having known you for a few years uh, a little bit, I'm not that surprised to hear that, but I think that's really an important thing that often leaders don't do. They don't go around and see. That's actually, you know, in a way, it's a little bit more like the Japanese model where, you know, people go around and they have jobs in all the different parts of the company and they learn all the different aspects of the company. Yeah, yeah. You know, you asked about Godzilla and leadership. I got to I got to I got to answer that because uh, it is great. So I wrote my uh, book Godzilla on my mind in 2004. So that came out in the 50th anniversary year of the Godzilla franchise. And, you know, it was great. We got a lot of attention uh, for that. I did a big international conference in Lawrence with one of my colleagues and we had uh, a film festival and museum displays and so forth. Uh, and uh, a lot of media uh, attracted was attracted to it because it's just hilarious, right? Academic studying, you know, a big Japanese movie monster was funny. Uh, I started getting all these emails, though. And one of the ones I remember very clearly was from a professor uh, somewhere down south, Alabama, Mississippi, wrote to me and said, Bill, uh, I'm a professor of business at some public university, uh, and uh, I read your stuff about Godzilla, and I'm wondering if you'd be interested in collaborating with me on the book Godzilla on Leadership. Uh, (laughs) And I said, that's hilarious. I said, I don't know that I have any lessons from the Godzilla movies about leadership. He said, you don't need them. He said, I'm going to tell you a little secret. Every one of those so-and-so on leadership books, Genghis Khan, Shakespeare, Queen Elizabeth, it's all the same 10 things. There are really only 10 lessons in this world about leadership. You can put any face you want on it, but you're really trying to teach people some basic lessons, like listening, you know? Uh, and I'm sure you can find examples from Godzilla. I said, sign me up. Uh, we thought it was a brilliant idea. Toho Studios did not, however, and they would uh, okay. allow us to use Godzilla on leadership as the title of the book. <laughs> That's too bad. That would have been a good book. I would have liked to have seen that one. So so that kind of brings me onward, I guess, a little bit, um, something that went wrong. I wonder if you could give me a couple of uh, examples of situations, maybe a professional and personal one, where you were just wrong about something. You realized it, um, and then you were moved by that situation. And, and I'm curious how you think that might have changed your way of looking at things and, and you know, what, what did the experience, what was the impact on you? Yeah, you know, it's a... It's a tough question because it makes you go back to painful moments, uh, right? Uh, but that, therefore, it's a good question. Let me give the personal one first. Uh, I am not a person who lacks in confidence, you know? 
uh, I tend to have, uh, and partly that's based in optimism, right? You know, I always think good things are going to happen. Uh, even as I buy, you know, my 50th Powerball ticket without a big win, I still think good things are going to happen. And that, I think, does breed a sense of confidence uh, going uh, forward. Uh, and, you know, when I was younger, uh, I really believed I knew what I was going to do in life, you know? So when I went to college, I'm like, I'm going to be an econ major. I'm going to go into business. Uh, you know, I'm going to be making giant deals. I'm going to be working on Wall Street. I had no idea what somebody in business did. I still honestly don't really know what most people who work for corporations do. <laughs> uh, but I went to college. And I took EC10. You know, I took the introductory econ course. And I did well. You know, I was sort of a math geek in high school. But I got out of it. I finished the year and I said, you know, I learned how to make a lot of graphs and formulas this year. I didn't actually learn about any people. Uh, I don't think I want to go into business at this point. Uh, and that's where Ezra Vogel and uh, East Asian Studies came in for me and filled that void. So after four years of college, um, uh, you know, you get the question, what are you going to do when you graduate? Uh, and I honestly didn't know what I was going to do uh, when I graduated. But I looked around me, uh, and of course I went to popular culture. Remember, I like Godzilla movies, so I watched L.A. Law a lot, you know? I thought, boy, those guys have a pretty good life, right? Fast cars, uh, uh, nice suits, skyscrapers, uh, uh, and... Uh, boy, a couple of my roommates are going to law school too. So I'll go to law school, you know? So I went to law school. And this was the most humbling experience of my life in many ways. Uh, I went to law school uh, and I had no motivation to go to law school. Uh, I had genuinely no interest in what I was studying. Uh, and um, I felt no connection to anyone around me. I went to a great law school. It, I picked it specifically because it was one with relatively small classes and that billed itself as being relatively humane. Within two days, I knew I was in the wrong place uh, and that there was no way I was going to be able to succeed. Yeah, no. And, you know, I'd written a big check, uh, you know, uh, to go uh, to school. Everyone had been like, oh, congratulations, you're going. That's great. Can't wait to, you you know, uh, join the bar. Uh, and, you know, I realized pretty quickly that I didn't want to be here and I was not being successful. You know, there are very few times I've submitted a paper in my life that I have been ashamed of. Uh, literally every time I put my pen to paper, I was ashamed of what I did in law school. I can say in retrospect, maybe it's because I wasn't motivated, but maybe it's just because my mind doesn't work that way and I wasn't good at it either. <laughs> uh, and so after six weeks, I decided that's enough, you know? Um, and I said, I'm going to, you know, eat the shame of dropping out of law school uh, and maybe I can get a bit of a refund on my tuition as well. And I did, which was, which was helpful. But I remember talking to my friends who did up, end up going to law school and they sort of saw me as caving, you know? They said, no, we don't like it either, but we're gonna stick with it. Uh, and I have to say, one of them uh, ended up working in the Department of Justice. The other's a law school professor at Harvard. Okay. <laughs> they did okay. Yeah, yeah. But I'm saying to myself, I, you know, I did the right thing in giving it up. And I called my mother and I remember, uh, I called her up and said, you know, I just can't do this, you know. Uh, 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 and she started crying. I'm like, oh, my gosh, you never want to make your mom cry. 
turns out she was crying tears of joy because she thought she wanted me to be happy and she thought I'd be happier uh, going back to study Japanese history, which was what I really, really loved. So, yeah, that, that's I'm I'm curious because I actually had a similar experience. I started my PhD in religious ethics, and within really a few weeks, realized I was in the wrong place. It was a, a little bit of a different reason. Part of it was because I realized that I couldn't do religious ethics as it was done where I was, which was from a very Western perspective. And, um, and I was really struggling with the fact that what they were doing didn't make sense to me intellectually. But I, I'm curious, if, you know, I had this, I left after one semester and, and I, you know, did you feel a sense of failure? I felt a bit of a sense of failure. It was like, wow, I, I didn't do that. And, you know, how did you kind of cope with that? Yeah, you know, it, it was with me for a very long time, mm-hmm. you know, uh, honestly. Uh, today I talk about it. Uh, uh, as a life lesson, uh, and I believe me, I talk about it often with students. You know, uh, first of all, I say to any student who's going to law school, you need to intern with a lawyer before you go to law school, uh, just so you know what this is all about. Uh, but the other thing I say is, um, you know, you got to go with your heart uh, in the end. Uh, we live in a society uh, which has incredible expectations on young people to know what they want to do. Uh, and to choose a path that uh, parents can be proud of when they talk to their friends about it. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> and that... unfortunately, not many parents are proud of, I want to be a writer, you know, uh, I want to go get a PhD, you know, you can go down the list. Uh, so I say it all the time. To me, there is nothing sadder than to meet a 17-year-old who says, I want to be a chemical engineer, you know? It's like, do you know what a chemical engineer does? Do you know how painful the next five or six years of your life are going to be, you know? Please go to college, get a liberal arts education, see what's out there, and do what gives you pleasure and drives your passions, you know? Uh, and if that's chemical engineering, I'm all in with you. If that's being a lawyer, I'm all in with you. But, you know, and that's where I finally got. I finally got to the point where, you know, um, uh, dropping out of law school is not, you know, some demerit on my CV, right? Right. right. <laughs> but yeah. it was actually a positive growth experience for me in life. Yeah, I have had over the years several students in my office saying things like, I'm pre-med, but I hate what I'm doing, but my parents will just go berserk if I don't become a doctor. I had one student um, whose mother disowned him when he said that he just decided he wanted to be a chemist rather than going to med school. Yeah, I mean, it was just shocking. He was like in his last semester and he was trying to finish and she just cut him off and and wouldn't, you know, wouldn't even respond to his phone calls. And, um, you know, I felt terrible for this guy because he, he just decided, and it's not like he's going to have a bad career as a chemist or anything. Um, but, you know, that, that pressure is really powerful for students these days. And, and yet it's really important to have had, I think, you know, a diversion like that where you tried something and it turns out, ooh, that didn't work. Because you, you get to know yourself a lot better as a result of that. And, um, but it's just, you know, there are pressures coming from every angle saying you need to, as you said, you need to know exactly what you want to do. And if you don't do it, you fail. 
That's it. You know, and you know, I'm going to say I do think this is heightened even as an Asian American uh, in our society, uh, where that uh, uh, pressure uh, to succeed professionally uh, is so very strong. And I, you know, I have a lot of sympathy uh, to the Asian Asian American students uh, I meet uh, that uh, that can be uh, paralyzing sometimes. Uh, and you know, giving people safe opportunities to fail is an important part of the learning process, and some institutions do it better than others. Yeah. Yeah, I will say that most of the time when I've had students in my office saying that sort of thing, they've been Asian American. Yeah. And, mm-hmm. and it's, it's unfortunate because they're getting a lot of pressure from parents. Yeah, yeah. And, you know, I, I tell them when that happens, I say, well, if you don't want to be a doctor, what kind of doctor are you going to be? <laughs> uh, and I sure as hell don't want to go to you if I'm sick. <laughs> You know. Exactly right. No, that, that's right. And, you know, uh, uh, this is, you know, a situation where it's a two-way street, you know. Uh, you can feel good in yourself, uh, but um, bringing other people along with you uh, can be tough. Uh, but to me, what I've always felt is you realize that for those other folks, it's a process too, you know. And in the moment, that conversation might be difficult and they might not accept what you're doing but give them time to work through it as well. Yeah. Yeah. I think that's true. So, you know, one of the goals that we have in this podcast is to talk about the problem of what we've called intellectual humility. And, and I'd be curious how you might define that term. Also, I I'm interested in what you think is really the most pressing or serious problem related to intellectual humility in your work as a leader in higher ed administration. Um, I think, uh, well, uh, I will say, uh, I will, you know, say that uh, I have very much uh, most of my career been, as you described your early career, as one of the naysayers about administrators, uh, <laughs> because I often don't think they have much humility. Uh, but I, you know, I think actually, I know you have a lot of humility, and I'm really kind of interested in, in how you think that relates to being a leader in higher education. You know, I, it, this is a really interesting question, because uh I'm going to say, to the extent that I feel I have intellectual humility, I think it's been learned, you know? I didn't come out of the box that way, you know? And I'll be honest with you, I think through a lot of my career, I was, and perhaps in some ways still am, sort of a jerk, you know? Uh, that uh, I have not always been terribly good at filtering, you know? And I have not always been as kind as I should be. And honestly, that's one of my great professional regrets uh, and something I'd like to go back and change uh, about myself. But I feel it has been an evolution over time. And I've reached the point now that I hope that when that day comes, I do retire and people think, oh, what was Bill like? That they will, you know, when they think about me, think about some generosity of spirit, uh, uh, because to me, that's at the core. Uh, of intellectual humility. Uh, it is um, uh, uh, being able to recognize and celebrate uh, others uh, and realize that uh, you don't always have the right answer. Uh, you don't always have the best answer. You certainly don't have the answer, you know? Uh, and uh, the more you can invite into the conversation, uh, the better. You know, in some ways, this should be baked into our work as humanists, right? You know, uh, that we know. Uh, that the answers we find to the intellectual questions we pose 
are going to have answers, but they're not going to be the answer, right? This is not, you know, the theory of general relativity, you know, where we are finding natural laws that apply across the galaxies, you know? We are providing meaning and interpretation at a particular point in time for a particular group of people. And as a historian in particular, I realize I spend my entire life going back and saying to previous generations, you were wrong here and you were right there, you know? And much of it is based on new evidence that has come to light, so an empirical base. But some of it is based as well on just on changes in theoretical perspectives, in scholarly trends, in where we are as a culture at this moment. So it's filtered through a different kind of glass, uh, a set of glasses than people were wearing 50 years ago, the last time uh, they studied that. And you have to realize as you're doing that, in another 50 years, somebody will have a different set of glasses on. Exactly. That yeah. Tsutsui was full of it. You know? Yeah. 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 I, 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 every, every so often I, I will see my first book being cited as though it's about Japan today. Yeah, right. Mm-hmm. I did the research for that 30 years ago. And I just think, no, please don't cite my book. You, you can cite it as sort of a historical document about the way things were in the mid nineties, but a lot of stuff has changed. And, but I think academics have a way of, of not capturing that very well. They, they tend to sort of sit in the, in the moment they're in and kind of, you know, just pull whatever they're going to pull and it supports what they're doing. And, and they aren't thinking about this, about the, the academic endeavor itself as a long-term process that never ends. It just keeps going. And I, yeah, I think that's a, a real problem in the academy, actually. Yeah, yeah. And, you know, that's one of the advantages, uh, uh, I think, of having students, uh, because students do keep us honest, <laughs> you know? Uh, and it's sort of like you know, having kids has the same impact, I think. You get all those why questions, you know? Uh, and when you have to fall back, you realize, you know, in many ways, these structures I'm building my arguments on are fairly flimsy, you know, uh, that, you know, uh, uh, there are lots of ways you can question this and come to different kinds of conclusions uh, than I have, you know. So, you know, here's one of my moments of being a jerk. I love, you know, I usually, I give this example to students a lot. I had a colleague at Hendricks who was a theoretical physicist, and he was working on uh, dark energy. Uh, and, you know, I said, okay, you know, honestly, I don't know what dark energy is. Can you explain it to me so a dummy can understand it? So he goes on, and, you know, he could tell as he's explaining it that, you know, my eyes are rolling back in my head and I'm not getting it. And he said, Bill, it's just like this. Uh, uh, we know uh, that dark energy is out there. We just haven't found it yet. And my smart-ass response was, oh, you mean like Bigfoot? You know? <laughs> You <laughs> didn't talk to me again for like six months. <laughs> right, <yeah. laughs> but, you know, as, you know, if I had been thoughtful, what I really meant to say was, shouldn't we be questioning the standard model of physics rather than looking for something, you know, to prove it for us, you know? Uh, and I think then he would have kept talking to me. But, you know, to me, that underlines that just the words you choose, you know, can have they can continue a conversation or they can end a conversation. And, you know, honestly, one of my great professional regrets and, you know, um, uh, uh, 
this, this will be my form of an apology, I think, by being on this podcast was, you know, in my book on Godzilla, uh, uh, I really think I was more dismissive of fan cultures than I should have been, you know. Um, you know, I was coming from a professorial vantage point uh, and um, uh, had kind of an ethnographic approach to fans, you know, in an attempt to distance myself from that culture. You know, oh, I don't want to be seen as, you know, one of those guys, you know. Uh, I want to be seen as the observer and the expert. Uh, and I went too far, you know, because, uh, you know, first of all, I am a fan, you know, uh, and so I need to admit that. And you have to admit that a lot of people are, who are fans uh, have extremely valuable perspectives on our shared passion uh, uh, and that they bring uh, knowledge uh, that deserves every bit as much respect as I do. Yeah, that I think actually that's one of the most uh, powerful things in my experience of doing, you know, ethnographic field work is that you, you start talking to quote unquote normal people, not academics, and you just realize how freaking smart they are and how many interesting ideas they have and, and how creative they are. And then you start realizing, oh, yeah, actually being a professor is really nothing special. I just spent a lot of time doing formal education. But that's really what it comes down to, a lot of formal education. I have, I have certain skills about how to deal with information, but there are lots of people out there that have really interesting ideas and very creative. And I think academics do have a way of just kind of either not seeing it or even poo-pooing it. You know, they just don't get there. And it's the same way with administrators. And that, you know, sort of brings it back to your original uh, question. Uh, I do think one of the problems that college administrators, maybe all, you know, leaders in large organizations have is believing that only they can see the true complexity of a situation. Uh, uh, and there's one way to solve that, is to bring people in so they understand the true complexity of a situation. Yes. Yep, yep, yep. <laughs> you know? yeah. And I think that's where the real lacking, you know, frankly, in uh, uh, leadership and society in general, but in higher ed in particular, is right now, uh, that there are, you know, one gets the dictates coming down from the administration building saying, we have to do this, and no one ex understands why one, we have to do this. Uh, I would say from my perspective, there are, in 95% of the cases, really good reasons to do it, you know? That isn't to say it has to be that way, but there are rash, and then 5% are truly random, crazy, you know, bad leaders doing things they shouldn't be. <laughs> and I'm as guilty of that uh, as, uh, as anyone. Uh, but I do think if you can bring people into that process of understanding on what rational basis decisions are made, and uh, in the process, listening for other inputs that otherwise you might not hear, then we could get beyond some of this disconnect we see uh, on campuses and in our society between those with a title and those who have to live with the decisions. Yeah, you know, even even as a faculty, I mean, I'm a senior full professor and all that. I don't know how many times some decision gets made and I'm like, why? But no explanation ever comes forth. It's just, this is the decision that was made. And it's very difficult to get on board with the decision if you don't know why, <laughs> um, you know, cause you don't, it's, it's like, again, as you say, there, there may be a very good reason for it. Even a reason that we don't really like, 
but it's still, this is dictating the situation. That's exactly um, right. Yeah. Yeah. Because, you know, I'll tell you, you know, most college administrators don't like the situations they're in either, but there has to be a decision made, you know? And, you know, I fear that that becomes an excuse for not including people sometimes, you know, um, that, um, so uh, I served under a president at SMU named Gerald Turner, and he has been president for, I don't since the dawn of time, I mean, decades, <laughs> he's been a college president. So he has a lot of, you know, real wisdom about uh, the academy. And, um, you know, he said, boy, I hear all the time from the members of our board of trustees who are Dallas billionaires, you know, that the university just isn't changing fast enough, you know? We're not adapting. We're not agile, you know? And he said, you know, just look, what are the two longest lasting institutions in Western civilization? The church and universities. What are the two slowest institutions to change? The church and universities. There is a correlation there, you know? And so being cautious and thoughtful about doing things is not bad, you know? Uh, and that's how I feel too, you know? And I feel that, you know, we know how it is, you know? Uh, uh, we teach a student, go back six months later and say, what's the date of the Meiji restoration? I might not be happy with the answer in a lot of places, but if you continue to engage with people and provide them with the basis for understanding uh, how decisions are made, people learn, you know? We are lifelong learners uh, and uh, uh, we're also adults, you know? And we know sometimes there are hard decisions that might not go uh, our way. Uh, uh, that I believe is the path forward and is how shared governance should work in theory. Yes. Yeah. So this, this brings me up to something that um, I have seen as an error um, that I think has a big influence on higher education. And um, uh, you can tell me I'm wrong. I, I, I would like to hear if I'm wrong, but uh, I've been really troubled by this widespread adoption of the quote unquote business model in which, for example, students are viewed as customers. The word customer gets thrown all the time around my university and I think a lot of other places. And I don't think universities have customers. I think that we, we have stakeholders, but not customers. Now, I'd be curious what you, you, know, you think about um, this development over the past decades in higher education and, and maybe also what some of the challenges facing higher education are as we're moving into the middle of the 2020s. Um, so another way to I suppose ask ask this is to say, you know, what do you think higher education is getting wrong at this juncture in history? Do you think the business model is one of those things? Yeah, yeah. You know, uh, 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 the business model is broken uh, in higher education today. There's no question uh, about that. Um, uh, the question is where we go from here, uh, because we got this business model because our previous business model was broken, and the previous business model was really based on a couple things. One was uh, uh, governments, whether state governments or the federal governments, funding higher education adequately. Uh, and when that ended, it meant, boy, you know, the gravy train is, you know, ending. How are we going to pay for what we do, you know? And how are we going to preserve what we think is most important about higher education in a situation where the resources just simply are not there, you know? And the second thing I think was that, you know, if we go back 50 years ago, we had a much less diverse student body than we have now, 
you know, uh, that we tended, uh, and we can look across the board on that, racially, economic diversity, intellectual diversity, uh, even, uh, you know, uh, uh, we generally had uh, uh, fairly privileged people coming into higher education who didn't need that much help, you know? Uh, they had a good start in life, and we were just polishing them up for the next stage, you know? Uh, now it's a whole lot different, okay? So the federal support is not there, and the people we all really want to serve require much more help along the way than the traditional education model was able to provide, you know? And, you know, I feel like I'm part of the broken business model, but I didn't create the business model, you know? The business model we have today is really there are only two ways in higher education to get additional resources to support all those additional needs on our campuses. Uh, and one is more students, uh, and one is more income from each of the students that you do have. And the reality is we can't do that in the world today. There aren't enough students to go around, you know. Uh, we have excess capacity in higher education, if you want to put it in very industrial uh, uh, terms. And college is already expensive enough. Yes, know? that's right. <laughs> we, we cannot ask families to borrow more to come to college. It just does not work. We have mortgaged our future as a nation uh, by passing so many of these higher education costs back to individuals, you know? Uh, and so the problem about this is if there is going to be a solution, it has to be a solution that involves the state as well, you know? Uh, because if you just leave it up to individual colleges and universities and university systems, we are just going to muddle along and consumerize higher education even further than it has been now. We need a new public commitment to higher education. There's a part of me that really wishes we didn't need private universities in this country, that we could count on uh, uh, the, uh, the state and the sense of a public good to carry uh, higher education. Uh, the idealist in me says, I think someday that could happen uh, again. But until then, we're stuck in this model uh, where uh, we have uh, commercialized higher education um, that, um, you know, depending on the institution you're at, that balance between customer and student uh, is very, very uh, different. Uh, and I'll be honest, I think one of the great strengths of American higher education traditionally has been its diversity, uh, that you can find an institution that works for you, you know. I remember I had a colleague who did uh, a sabbatical at the University of Leicester uh, in Britain. Uh, and when he went there, he said, what can I expect from my students? And he's the professor at Leicester said to him, well, as an American, I'll tell you, you will find all your students are B pluses. Because by the sorting that takes place in our system, those are the kind of students we get at this institution. And if you go to Oxford, they're A's. If you go further down the pecking order, they're C's. You're going to get... He said, darn it, he was right. They were a very uniform group of students. I don't know that that serves people terribly well. So there's a joy that in America, boy, if you are someone who learns better in an online environment and needs flexible uh, uh, teaching schedules and doesn't have time to, you know, uh, uh, live on a campus and be in a uh, classroom from nine to five, uh, there are options for you to get the kind of life-changing education you need. But I fear in the world we're at right now, it's gone too far, uh, especially with for-profit education out there, which is frankly predatory, you know, 
And I take as one of my goals uh, at the university I'm at now is how can we rescue people from predatory for-profit higher education? Uh, because we're looking at the same kind of students. Uh, but I tell you, if you come to Ottawa as opposed to going to, I won't name any of the competition, uh, we care about you and we want you to be successful. We don't just look for that check. We have a mission and we're nonprofit. So, you know, uh, it's, it's sort of like the, you know, putting uh, uh, with social media. How do you put the cat back in the bag once you've released this tremendous energy uh, uh, into our society? How do we do that in our education sector as well? Yeah, I think your, your point about the, the involvement of the state is actually absolutely key to this, too. I, a lot of people don't realize that if you go back to the early 1980s, most state universities were getting as much as 80 percent of their operating budget from from the government. Now, most of them are getting maybe 10 percent. The money's got to come from somewhere. And and but that change has profoundly shaped higher education, particularly public higher education. And um, there is no going back unless we start funding universities more completely. Even, you know, it doesn't have to be 80%, but even 50% would be an enormous improvement and would help. Yeah. No, but, you know, I, I talk to people, I say, you know, look at other public goods in our society. Look at our highways. We have the ability now to track every mile of highway you drive in your car, right? We can charge you, you know, part of that cost, you know. Do you want that? No, because you accept that is something that should be provided, you know, as part of uh, the social contract. And education needs to be the same way. Yeah, I... I... I agree. I, I, I mean, we're biased, we're educators, but I also think it's true. I, I think that the fact is that, that access to quality education is just part of the social contract. It's what we should have available to us. And, um, you know, so I'm curious, is there anything we haven't covered you'd like to add about screwing up? <laughs> <laughs> Well, you know, John, I think we've covered a lot of ground here because we started with Godzilla. <laughs> we did. We did. <laughs> but, you know, I want to, I, you know, there's, you know, I, I've reached that point in my career where I'm getting a bit reflective uh, about, you know, you know, 30 years uh, in the academy and, you know, uh, the students today don't get most of the jokes uh, that I tell, you know, uh, Monty Python, what's Monty Python, you know, so. Uh, 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 it, it makes you uh, reflect. I found actually some of the first generation of students I taught at the University of Kansas are now reaching that middle age period and they're getting reflective and they reach out to me and want uh, to talk about it. You know, and like I talk to a lot of people and they say, boy, I'm glad I'm not starting over again today. I'm glad I'm not a kid today. And I, there's a lot that resonates with that. You know, I'm thrilled that I went to school in a time when I didn't have to worry about active shooter training, you know, um, uh, and, you know, um, go down the list. You know, there's so many new stressors now in our society. And yet I remain optimistic uh, about human nature, and I remain idealistic about the power of education, that if we are going to find solutions to the problems that we have, they're not going to start in Washington. You know, ultimately, they have to end in Washington, but they're probably going to start on college campuses, you know? Uh, and so the work that we're doing is absolutely critical. Uh, and doing it with the humility we've been discussing, doing it with the ability to learn from our mistakes, and that includes our mistakes as a society, uh, that's going to set us in good stead. 
Yeah, that's, that's a wonderful way to bring things to a close. I, I think, you know, higher education is a tremendously powerful engine for addressing our problems and thinking about how we want our world to be. Uh, and yeah, you just summed that up absolutely beautifully. And so, um, Bill, this has you know, been really a fabulous conversation. I really appreciate you taking the time to join me. And um, I know you're really busy. I mean, you're the, the chancellor of a university. I'm sure you've got plenty of things to do today. I've got um, people to go press later. Yeah. There you go. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> I, I will also tell our audience that there are a whole variety of Godzilla uh, um uh, I guess, st- statues and things in the background that I'm looking at. So that's really fun. Um, I, I will I will also say I, I, uh, I like Godzilla, but I like all of the Ultraman monsters even more. They're my favorite. Oh, you know, we could, we could have a whole nother hour just talking about Godzilla versus Ultraman and Gamera and all the other monsters out there. So many, it, it, you know, one of the joys too is I always have Japan in my life, uh, and that is so enriching uh, through everything to have this wonderful culture uh, that I feel like I have a unique point of access to. Yeah, I've I've enjoyed that as well. So, so thank you so much, and um, I really appreciate you taking the time. And um, you know, it's been a lot of fun. Thanks so much, John. It was for me too. <laughs> <laughs>